We'll turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, uh, and we'll, we'll be in 15 through 22 this morning as we continue our series in Galatians. Let's read, let's read God's Word, Galatians three fifteen through 22. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an inter- intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise, promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the whole Bible uh, can be summed up under, under one kind of grand overarching theme. Uh, and if you've been here for any length of time, I, I think this is something that we, we say quite a lot around here. But, but the whole Bible can be summed up as one cohesive story of redemption. It's about God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing, and it starts, of course, with Adam and Eve in this garden, which, which is, of course, what? God's people living in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing. And then moves on from there to, to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the, the Old Testament patriarchs and the stories and, and all of that, those things that we, we heard about and learn about in the Old Testament and, and the stories we heard in Sunday school and but how does the Bible finish? What's the, what are the closing chapters of the Bible about? How does it end? What is the, where is this all going? Well, it's going to God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing that the new covenant people, the new heavens and the new earth and, and Jesus being there and being our king and, and God there being our God and wiping, wiping away every tear from every eye and that, that beautiful, that beautiful uh, world that we have to look forward to as God's people. We will truly permanently be living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so that's the beginning, and that's the end, and our passage is kind of dealing with the in-between time, right? It's dealing with this in-between time when, when Moses and God's people uh, are, are, have escaped from, from Egypt, and God has brought them out through the Red Sea, this great redemptive act of, 
of the old covenant people of God and 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 Moses goes up onto the mountain to meet with God and God is is going to to give him this gracious way uh to to live as his people in the place that he is leading them to under his rule and blessing it's the law and so Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, comes down with the law, this, this gracious way to live as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And what did he find? <laughs> what were the people of God doing at the foot of the mountain while Moses was on there meeting with God? Well, they were, they were breaking the first of the commandments. Uh, they were breaking the very law that God had just given them. They were worshiping idols. And of course, this shocks and outrages Moses, but how does God respond? God God graciously turns away from his wrath, and he does not destroy his people. He does not reject them as his people. And he, he graciously does what he is promised to do he graciously does what what his promises what he promised to do that to give them this land to give them this place where they can live as his people under his rule and blessing and and he gives them this law that helps them to maintain that relationship with him based not necessarily upon their obedience but based upon his graciousness in accepting sacrifices of animals instead of their blood he accepts the blood of others and And so now we can start to see why the psalmist can say in Psalm 19, verse 10, that the law is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And the reason that we can say that and the reason that our our outlook on the law is that is because we haven't changed all that much from the people of God sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, all those many thousands of years ago. That that we still forget the work that God does to free us from slavery and to to release us from bondage and we turn to to these escapes of, of pleasure and lusts and our hearts are these idle factories that and the thing that governs God's mercy to his people then is the thing that governs his mercy to his people now. And those are his promises. The promises of God to his people that God deals with us according to his promises, not according to our performance. What that means then is that the law and grace are teammates. It's the law and grace are working together in tandem, but it's the promises of God's grace that the law serves. That law and grace work together, the law illuminating for us our need for grace But grace prevails. Grace prevails. So I'm quite proud. We've got three alliterating points this morning. That doesn't always happen, but um, there, there you go. God's prevailing promise of grace 
is permanent. <laughs> it's preceding. One always has to be a little awkward, I feel like. And God's prevailing grace is preeminent. It's permanent, it's preceding, and preeminent. So God's promise is permanent. Let's look at, let's look at how God's promise is permanent. I say this with absolutely zero qualifications, but with the utmost in confidence. Um, But one of the most ancient legal concepts in the world has to be the idea of a a last will and testament. Uh, And and the the oldest known, like because Wikipedia exists, the oldest known uh, last will and testament in writing goes back to Egypt in 2500 B.C., and that was 600 years before Abraham was even born. So Paul here uses this as an example. He, he has a couple of different examples. They're usually athletic. Uh, but then here he's coming to say, to give a human example in verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified, Paul says. So he's, he's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. That if this, lesser, if this is true about this lesser thing, how much more is it true about this greater thing? In other words, if it is true in human courts of the law, how much more true it is, is it in the courtroom of God? That God has guaranteed it, and, and it is so, and who can change his mind, and his promises can never be annulled, and, and we're talking about this inheritance that's found in, in 318 of Galatians, this inheritance that is, that is coming to us through this promise, but... In, in Genesis 13, we have this story about Abraham and Lot, and they separate, and they go their separate ways uh, because of, because of the, just kind of family squabbles. They were getting too big, and they were kind of running into one another. And, and so after Lot leaves, God takes Abraham, and he maps out this inheritance with, with him. And, and he says that, that all of this land will be yours. Go, go on a walkabout and go walk it. And the length and breadth of the land that you walk, that all, everything will be yours. God will, will give him and his offspring and he will make his name great and make him into a great nation. And then in chapter 14 of Genesis, there's this pause while Abraham goes and rescues Lot. But then in chapter 15, God and Abraham come back together and then God ratifies this covenant with Abraham. And he does it in this way that seems a little bit odd to us, a little bit strange, a sort of custom, customary way where, where covenants are, are uh, ratified between two parties. And that is to, to cut up animals and split them in two and, and make a pathway between the two split halves of the animals. And, and then both parties were to walk through the middle of these bloody cut up animals. And the message there is, is that if I break the terms of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And so... God does all of this with Abraham except for one exception. God causes Abraham to fall into a dream. And then Abraham has this vision of this smoking pot passing between the two animals. The presence of God alone. Not Abraham. And so the message there is that God is taking on the obligations and the penalties of both sides of this covenant. And you know what? 
makes a will and testament, a last will and testament, permanent and unchangeable. You know what truly finalizes a last will and testament? What makes it last? <laughs> it's, it's death. That's when a, a last will and testament is really truly ratified and, and made permanent. And the promises of God's grace are permanent because they've been secured by the death of Jesus. The, the, the condemnation of the promise breaking that we incurred, that God's people incurred, has been borne by Christ Jesus. And because that penalty for our promise breaking has been borne by Jesus, then we receive the inheritance of being called God's people. And so we, we know that that inheritance comes true finally, one day, someday, in the reality that we will be living as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Because God's promises are permanent. Not only that, but they're not an afterthought. God's promises are preceding. They, they're not an afterthought. Verse 16 and 17, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So the first offspring that this is referring to is, of course, Isaac. But ultimately, Paul makes it plain that that offspring really is Christ. That, that Remember in, in verse 8 of, of chapter 3, it says that the, that the Scriptures preach the gospel beforehand to, to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, Jesus is that blessing. Like Jesus is the blessing that that, that is referring to. And, and the promised blessing came before the law almost 500 years before the law. This preaching of the gospel to Abraham happened before the law ever came into existence. And so when God gave the law to Abraham's descendants, Abraham had been dead for centuries. Well, where was Abraham's hope? Was it in the law or was it in his faith? Abraham was justified by his faith. Based on nothing that Abraham did, it was, it was the same for the Galatians as it, as it was for Abraham. That's what Paul is, is saying. That's the point that he's making. And in, it's the same for us. Phil, Phil Riken tells the story of a, a professor who was uh, in a university in the Far East. And uh, this professor was known uh, in, in this land and this university as being a Christian is his faith. He was known for his faith. And one of the students there who was not a Christian and living in this sinful lifestyle was just kind of increasingly burdened by, by the life that he was, was living. And, and he came to this professor one day kind of lamenting his own sinfulness. And he, he said it this way as he lamented to the professor, I just, I feel like a slave 
And the professor, quite rightly and quite lovingly said, you, you are a slave. You are a slave to your sin. And then he began to, to teach him about the freedom from sin in Christ that, that is possible. And, and the student listened and he, he learned intently, but he held back from, from Jesus thinking that he wasn't good enough for this good news. How could God forgive him? And finally, after, after lots of conversations of this, the professor kind of asked, like, why, why are you holding back? Why are, what is keeping you from Christ? And, and the student said, first, I need to become a Christian like you. Then God will love me. And the professor's reply to him is brilliant and full of the gospel when he says, I'm not a Christian like me. I'm not a Christian like me either. I'm no better than you are except for the love and power of God. He loves you now as you are. That's the gospel. Jesus is not plan B. He's not plan B for salvation because we couldn't cut it. That that life... Life comes fast. Life comes with uncertainty and disappointments and, and the, the fear and anxiety that we feel can be overwhelming and redeeming love. The, the redeeming love of God is, has never wavered. Even in the midst of all of that uncertainty and anxiety and, and guilt and shame and feeling like a slave and The redeeming God has never wavered from his promise of grace to his people, nor has his promise of grace been an afterthought or been plan B. He's never wavered from his desire for you to be seated at his table as his precious child. He's never wavered from his, his longing to have you receive that inheritance of the inheritance of one of his children that, that there's no plan B of redemption. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is it. God is more determined to apply his grace to our hearts than we are to receive it. And when I sin, I, I, try, to, I try to balance the scales by either just not doing the thing that I wasn't supposed to do again for a while, but also perhaps by doing something then to make up for it. Um, kind of like when you diet and you, you break your diet. What do you do first thing? You, I'm told you get back on your diet. Um, <laughs> but then also you try to exercise 30 extra minutes, Right. You try to do something else to make up for it. And so back on the diet, check. Zero minutes plus 30 minutes equals 30 minutes. So that's um, something. God's grace doesn't function like that. It's not like that. It's not the, the plan B that Jesus died to make you right with God and therefore justice has been satisfied. There is nothing to add because Jesus did it for us. So God's promises are permanent. Uh, They are preceding, but they're preeminent. 
meaning his promises rule. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's say somebody promises you something pretty significant, something you're pretty excited about and jazzed up about. Here's how promises work. If someone promises you something significant that that you really want, you really desire, you really need, you cannot earn it. It is impossible to earn a promise, right? The only way to receive a promise is how? Is to trust in the promiser. Is to trust in the one who makes the promise. That that it is based upon the trustworthiness of the promiser. That the promise has its credibility. Has its power. I cannot fulfill a promise that someone makes to me on their behalf. Romans 4, Paul puts it this way in verses 13 and 14. For the, the promise of, to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. It's, it's not a, a quid pro quo where I, I do something for God and in return he rewards me. We believe the promise to save through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's how we receive the promise. And then we act on our faith, living like the true heirs of the promise that we have become through faith in Christ. And so Paul then asks a couple of questions that seem relevant at this point. In verses 19 and and 21, he says, why then the law? So why do we have the law? It was added, he says, because of transgressions until the offspring should come whom the promise has been made. Remember, the law and and grace are their teammates. They're they're working together. It was given for a time to serve a purpose. God didn't give the law to reveal the way to be justified, but he gave it to disclose Sin's evil power. Calvin says it this way, the law was given to make transgressions obvious and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. So then verse 21, Paul asks another question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. One commentator put it this way, the law is like chemotherapy. It's actually an instrument of death. It destroys healthy tissue as well as cancerous tissue. It actually makes the patient feel sicker. But it's necessary The law kind of makes us worse so that Christ can make us better. The law leads us to Christ because the grace of Christ is supreme. It serves grace because grace rules. It leads us to Christ. It leads me to Christ because my heart chases so many idols 
And I need that, that gracious fence around my own heart that the, the law provides, that, that impatience, despair, the, the approval of men, whatever, whatever your pet sin is, the law won't let you live with it for long. And the law drives me to worship because it drives me to the cross. And to the Savior who loved me with a love that overpowers, what the law reveals is really in my heart. But all of that is true because grace rules supreme and the law isn't the last word. That the law doesn't give life, but it points to the life giver. The law reflects my need and it it also reflects the, the need meter in Jesus. The law shows and illustrates and, and, and convicts and, and herds and shepherds me to the one who offered himself for me as the penalty which my law-breaking demanded. That what is set before us here isn't a reward for keeping the law. But what is set before us here in the Lord's Supper is this wonderful illustration, this wonderful sign pointing us to the one who kept the law on our behalf and who offered his life, his perfect life, the righteous life of Christ to cover up my law-breaking life who offered his broken body and his shed blood as penalty for my law-breaking life. That we come to this table because grace rules. Because our need is great, but the one who meets our need is even greater. So let's come and celebrate. Let's celebrate the... The, the overpowering promises of God as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning as those who know and recognize that we need what Christ has provided in his broken body and his shed blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. I thank you, Lord, for your, your grace, which is greater than, than all of my sin. Your grace, which is more powerful than, than the, the sinfulness of my own heart. Lord, thank you for your love that, that you loved us, that, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Lord, we thank you that we can come to this table and gather with these people with whom we share this need in common, yes, but also with whom we share our Savior in common. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.